All right, we are back in Ephesians. And so, uh, if you haven't already opened up your Bibles there, please do so. Get your notebooks out, pencils. Get ready to take some notes. It just, it just takes a cursory read of Ephesians to notice that there's a very natural structure to this letter. The first three chapters of Ephesians is theological, doctrinal, and then the second three chapters of Ephesians is ethical and practical. In other words, in the first three chapters, Paul focuses on what he thinks the church should believe. And in the second three chapters, Paul focuses on how he thinks the church should behave. And that order makes sense to us because what we believe should determine how we behave. And so it's important, I think, to point out that very simple structure uh, to this letter as we, after taking a couple weeks off, jump back into it here at the beginning of chapter 3. Before we get to chapter 3, though, uh, I, I do want to give us, I, I do want to have a review. So first of all, let's, let's have a review. In chapter 1, um, there's, there's a very short greeting, verses 1 and 2. It's followed by one long sentence of praise, verses 2 through 13, and then one long sentence of thanksgiving uh, there to end Chapter 2. So chapter 1 is just two long sentences in the Greek. There's a short greeting, there's a praise, and a prayer. Then in chapter 2, Paul lays out this beautiful theology. It's one of the most well-loved chapters in all the Bible. First half of chapter 2 is about the salvation that we have in Christ And the second half of chapter 2 is about the unity that we have because of Christ. And because Paul is a preacher, and everyone knows that only really good preachers like to use alliteration, he uses alliteration here in this chapter to make a very important connection uh, for the hearers. Ephesians 2, I believe... Uh, is one of the most important texts that we have in all the New Testament. And, And Paul uses alliteration to make sure that those listening to these words as they're being read get the point, understand the connection that he's he's making. And what he does is he uses a prefix that means together with. And he adds it to a series of three words in verses 5 and 6. And then he also adds it to a series of three words in verses 19 through 22. And there's no doubt this is an obvious, purposeful, intentional connection that Paul's making. If you've missed it in your previous readings of this letter, make note of it and do not miss it again. In fact, write together with, at the top of your Bible, above chapter 2, together with, I think it's a great two-word summary of the main point of this letter. 
If I were to write a book about Ephesians, it would be my title, Together With. And here's what Paul's getting at with this letter. To be a Christian means to add the prefix together with to your life. Listen again to Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 2. In verses 5 and 6, God made us alive together with Christ. God raised us up together with Christ. God seated us together with Christ in the heavens. And then in verses 19 through 21, we are fellow citizens together with God's people. We're being joined together with God's people. We're being built together with God's people. You see, in Ephesians, Paul teaches us that there's no place for for any kind of individualized language in the vocabulary of a Christian. My vocabulary is now marked by together with. As a Christian, I must think about my life as together with Christ and together with you. Together with. Just go ahead and write that little phrase, not just at the top of your Bibles there at Ephesians chapter 2, but at the top of every page of the rest of your life. Now, this is the first Sunday that we have met without any restrictions since last March. It's been a total of 65 Sundays I've been keeping track. And so I think this is an appropriate message. It's an important reminder for us to be a people who are together with. Together with Christ. Together with you. Allow me to ask you a personal question this morning. Why do you come to Southside? Why do you choose to get together with this group of people? It's a good question to consider. Perhaps it's a question you've thought about over these last 65 weeks. You know, there's all kinds of reasons uh, for one person to get together with another person. Groups get together with one another based upon their given ethnicity, based upon their social status, based upon their chosen occupation, based upon their political affiliations, based upon their denominational ties. Based upon their personal interests, the reasons are endless. One of our neighbors uh, who lives up the street reminded me just the other day that the reasons are endless for us to gather together because he came to our home wanting to know uh, if my children wanted to join the Lexington Bridge Club. 
Now, what I learned uh, from the conversation is that the members of this group uh, do not actually go around building bridges, which would be a good reason to get together. It's not that kind of bridge club. Instead, they get together to play bridge. It's a card game. Uh, And uh, evidently, there's a concern about the future of bridge. (laughs) And so, the good folks at the Lexington Bridge Club are offering free lessons to the young people. You could say they're wanting to build a bridge to the next generation (laughs) of bridge players. Now, no offense to bridge, my favorite card game is Rook, which might just be as old as bridge. But I told him uh, my kids were probably not going to come. Jeremy, uh, our youth minister, has taught our kids to only play card games that are loud and dangerous. (laughs) And so bridge doesn't fall into that category. But here's a reality that's, that's true about every person that gets together with another person. Community is always formed through commonality. Whether that commonality is bridge or basketball. And in Ephesians 2, Paul emphasizes that the church's commonality... The reason for one Christian to get together with another Christian is faith. It's faith. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. Salvation is by grace and it's through faith. You see, faith in Christ is the relational glue. Faith in Christ is what connects me to him And faith in Christ is what connects me to you. Think uh, with me about this just for a moment. The church is unique in this way. What makes this gathering of people unique, different from every other gathering in our community? is that it gets together with one another because of our faith in Christ. So then, we don't get together with one another based upon our given ethnicity. And we don't get together with one another based upon our social status. And we don't get together with one another based upon our chosen occupation. And we don't get together with one another based upon our political affiliation. We don't get together with one another based upon our denominational ties. We don't get together with one another based upon our personal interests. We get together with one another based upon our faith in Christ. Period. I did a uh, 12-week Bible study uh, several years ago through Paul's letter to Titus. And one of the points that I emphasized in that Bible study is how revolutionary that letter is. 
Paul writes this letter to Titus, who he describes at the beginning of the letter as my true son in our common faith. Now, if you know anything about Paul's relationship with Titus, Paul's a Jew, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. On the other hand, Titus is a Gentile, uncircumcised on the eighth day, not of a tribe of Israel, a Greek of Greeks, in regard to the law, a pagan, and as for legalistic righteousness, faulty. And here's the situation. Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile convert of Paul with very little church experience, has been left on this small, remote island in the Mediterranean to encourage the building up of the church among a people who are described by their own prophets as always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. So the people in this young church on Crete may be converts to Christianity, but they're Cretan converts. And so what exactly does Paul and a Cretan convert have in common? The answer to that question is absolutely nothing. In fact, they could not be more different from one another. Yet Paul writes, Titus, my true son, in our common faith. You see, this is a revolutionary document that sits here in this Bible. Because the only thing that Paul has in common with the Cretans is faith in Christ. And that's precisely the point of the church. Paul's vision for the church is for it to be a diverse group of people politically, racially, economically, ethnically, generationally, and any other Ali you might be able to come up with this morning, yet have a common faith. And what is so powerful about the second half of Ephesians chapter 2 is that Paul shows us how the gospel makes it possible for such a diverse group of people to get together with one another based upon a common faith in Christ. In these verses, Paul says the gospel of Jesus Christ does three things. And I mentioned this at my last sermon uh, when I was up here with you last. Uh, And each one is important to uh, the formation of the church around a common faith. What, What the gospel does is it destroys old hostility, it creates new humanity, and it reconciles through humility. That's what the gospel does. You see, the gospel empowers us in this way by destroying old hostility, by creating new humanity, by reconciling through, humanity, through humility. It empowers us to be able to work through our racial and our ethnic and our economic and our political and our generational differences so that we might gather together with one another based upon our faith in Christ. 
And all those other things don't keep us from being together with one another because of our faith in Christ. You see, the vision for the church Paul presents here in chapter 2 of Ephesians is a remarkable one. The church is to be a group of people where religious, moral, circumcised Jews join together with irreligious, immoral, uncircumcised Gentiles because of their faith in Christ. And the only way those two groups can gather together with one another is through the power of the gospel. That's the only way. And this brings us to chapter 3. And this vision for the church literally brings Paul to his knees, as it should any of us. Jews, together with Gentiles, is not going to happen naturally. It's not going to happen organically. And it drives Paul to his knees in prayer. Beginning of chapter 3, Paul, Paul writes, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then there's a dash. You see, it's precisely because of his vision for the church that Paul's in prison. He's been in prison for four years. Acts tells us after being arrested in Jerusalem, he spent two years in Caesarea and two years in Rome. And he's in prison because of the opposition to his vision for the church. And so Paul has has personally experienced just how difficult this mission called the church is going to be, and it drives him to his knees. But you'll notice he stops here. There's this dash. This is a digression. He stops abruptly here and digresses. And verses 2 through 13 is, is, a, is a digression. It's just, it's just one long, rambled sentence. And then he picks back up in verse 14, and he resets. He writes again for this reason. So he begins verse 1 and verse 14 the same way, and he finally gets to the verb that he meant to get to there in verse 1 before he digressed. For this reason, I kneel because of this vision for the church. Kneel before the Father in prayer. But before he prays, he digresses. These verses, 2 through 13, is a sidebar. And so, many people will just skip right over it and, and jump to this beautiful prayer here at the end of chapter 3 because the prayer is so good, but so often taken out of context. But this digression um, is not just a pointless ramble. 
In fact, I would suggest uh, that it's a, it's a beautiful summary of the main point of this letter. You'll notice that the theme of this digression uh, is the mystery of Christ. Perhaps you, you caught on to that uh, as Gregory was reading this text for us earlier this morning. It's the mystery of Christ. Paul actually introduces us to this word. It's a significant word of Paul's here in Ephesians. He introduces us to this word back in Ephesians chapter 1 when he writes in verse 9 of chapter 1, and God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, Christ. And so Paul introduces us to this word back in Ephesians chapter 1, and then he reintroduces us to the word here in this digression, in this sidebar. He mentions it three times. Verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6. And it's important, it's a very important word to understand what Paul's getting at. What is the mystery of Christ? Paul views it as his responsibility, as his job, as his calling to proclaim to the world the mystery of Christ. Now, when we hear this word mystery, we actually hear something that's almost the opposite of what is meant by it in the Greek language. And so it's good for us to stop and talk about it for a moment. When I hear the word mystery in English, I actually think of Scooby-Doo, right? Uh, And Encyclopedia Brown. That's what I grew up on. That was my favorite book series, and it was my favorite cartoon growing up. And I was drawn in, I was drawn into the Encyclopedia Brown books, and I was drawn into Scooby-Doo and the adventures in the mystery machine because of the mystery, right? Because of the whodunit aspect, right? And as you read the book, as you watch the cartoon, you're trying to determine, you're trying to figure out who done it. We think of a mystery as something that's hidden from us, and it's our job to discover it. But the Greek word means the opposite. In the Greek, a mystery is something revealed by God because you and me would never guess it. A mystery in the sense of this word is made known by revelation rather than by investigation because it's counterintuitive. You would never come to it by a process of reasoning. It's something that can only be revealed because it goes against anything you would have ever guessed, anything you would have ever come up with on your own. You could have studied it your entire life and never have figured it out. 
Verse 3, Paul writes, it is the mystery made known to me by revelation. You see, there's been a specific revelation that's been given to Paul that had not been given to any other Old Testament prophet. It's part of the reason the Jews had such a problem with Paul is because he was saying that something had been revealed to him that had not been revealed to Moses. This mystery has been made known to Paul by revelation, not by his investigation. It wasn't something he figured out on his own. Then in verse 4, he says, in reading this letter, you will be able to understand my insight into this mystery of Christ. And then in verse 6, so there's no doubt he states this mystery as clearly as he possibly can. Here's the mystery that has been revealed to me by God because no one would ever guess it. You'd never come to it by a process of reasoning. No man would ever come up with an idea like this for the church Here's the mystery. And once again, Paul uses this little prefix, together with, three times. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Members of one body together with with Israel, and sharers together with Israel in the promises in Jesus Christ. You see, there's nothing what we would think of in the English as mysterious about this vision for the church. It's actually very straightforward. It's not something that's hard to understand. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure this out, but it had been hidden in God. And it has now been made known to humans through Paul. The mystery of Christ is not that the Gentiles would be saved. Because the Old Testament gives plenty of evidence for their salvation. This is a new revelation given to Paul. What the Old Testament did not reveal was the radical nature of God's vision for the church. A new kind of community is being formed called the church. A place where a common faith in Christ causes even Jews to get together with Gentiles. And it's this kind of unique withness, W-I-T-H dash N-E-S-S, that is the witness of the church. It's this kind of unique withness that is the witness of the church. The mystery of Christ is the ministry of the church. Let's pray together. Father, so thankful for your word. Ah, I, 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 I already can't wait to gather 
back together with the church family here next Sunday and just pick up right here where we left off. This special vision of the church that you have given to us through your word that's been, that's been saved, that's been protected through the years for us, that your Holy Spirit makes alive in us and in your people. Father, it's our heart, it's our desire to live out the vision for your church through the power of the gospel. So, Lord, speak to us through your holy word. Give us ears to hear and hearts to change until your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship our Lord and Savior Jesus.